Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. I'm sitting here in my office on the third floor of my house in Queens, and uh, good to be with you. So our topic today is Reading for Wisdom uh, in an Information Age. Reading for Wisdom in an Information Age. I'm asked regularly, you know, what are you reading, Pete? Uh, and, uh, you know, are there any books that I might recommend to them? But really, that, that question necessitates a few comments before answering it. And because there's a question we have to answer first, which is this. Many of us uh, are consuming tons of information, reading lots of books or listening through audio to lots of books or skimming them. And uh, we're insatiably looking for material, uh, for sermons, for talks, silver bullets of wisdom, uh, so the real issue is, how do you read? Uh, so before I share with you a, a number of important and different types of books that I've been reading over the last six to nine months, I, I want to share with you a few thoughts on reading, uh, reading as a leader, and uh, because reading is a way of being mentored. Uh, and, and we're not reading so much for information. Uh, we're reading for wisdom. We're, we're seeking wisdom. Uh, we're seeking God, and uh, we're not trafficking necessarily in words, uh, as the Desert Fathers call them. And, uh, you know, Proverbs eight eleven says it best, wisdom is more precious than jewels. Nothing else is so worthy of desire. So we're not reading to get it, uh, but actually to let it get us. Uh, in other words, we read differently. Uh, as leaders. Again, we're not reading just to get information, but to sometimes uh, and often to allow it to get us. Thus, uh, I want to recommend to you uh, a different way of reading, uh, slowly and contemplatively and prayerfully, and asking the question, how is God coming to me through what I'm reading? Now, sometimes we have to read things many, many times uh, to let it get us. In fact, the question is how many times you need to read it is the question is, has it got you yet? Uh, and so in other words, what's disturbing your heart? What's moving your heart? What's exciting your heart? Uh, you're not going to get points or stars for reading a lot of books. I realize some people have a goal. I'm going to read a book a week or whatever, you know, 50 books a year or 30 books a year. Uh, I, I don't think that's the goal. I, I think the goal is what's God inviting you to? and then to respond accordingly uh, in that process. So when I read, for example, I take notes in the back of the book, uh, the book I'm reading, uh, most books. I sometimes will journal about it, definitely gonna be praying through it, and uh, will sometimes read the same thing over and over again. Uh, again, I, I can think of you know, a number of leaders that just quoting books left and right. I mean, people read my own books. Uh, and as one pastor said to me, Pete, I've read all your books. I don't do any of them, but I read them. I've read them all. And so I, I want to invite you to read for wisdom in this information age we're living in and to make a shift uh, to get out of your head and more into your heart as a reader. I, I just think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the scriptures tell us that she would often ponder these things in her heart, you know, as events were happening around her, words were being spoken. Uh, and let me just repeat again, we're, we're seeking wisdom, not simply head knowledge. 
because wisdom is more precious than jewels. Now, information gives you knowledge. And some of you are you know, brilliant you know, students. But knowledge does not automatically translate into wisdom. That's different. Uh, wisdom comes out of life and reflection, etc. So uh, I, I want to really suggest a relearning of how we read, slowing it down so that our hearts are fertile. And I want to read you, before I go into you know, books I've been recently reading, I, I want to read you two sayings from the, the Desert Fathers and uh, from uh, one of the Desert Fathers called Theodore of Fermi. And uh, if you've never read the sayings of the Desert Father, it's really worth you know picking that up from Penguin or Benedict Ward's book. And uh, these were uh, wise men and women who fled to the deserts in the second, third, and fourth centuries uh, to get cleansed of the idols of the culture and their own heart, to seek the face of God. And these became the, the spiritual leaders uh, of the church uh, for the first you know 1,500 years. Uh, and they're just brilliant sayings. So here's one of them from Theodore Fermi. Uh, a brother came to Theodore and spent three days begging to get a word from him, but, but he did not get any reply. So he went away grieved. And so then Theodore was asked by you know, another fellow, why didn't you give a word to him? He has gone away grieved. And the old man said, I did not speak to him, for he is a trafficker who seeks to glorify himself through the words of others. Uh, that's pretty brilliant, you know. He's a trafficker who seeks to glorify himself through the words of others. So there, are, we're saying is that there are, are, are folks. It's easy to go around just getting words from other people uh, in order to whatever we're building there. But they're not necessarily our words. We haven't taken the time to let them sink deep enough to become ours, as we learn from other people. And there's another uh, saying from Theodore Fermi: uh, A brother came to Theodore and began to converse with him about things which he had never put into practice. So the old man, Theodore, said to him, You've not yet found a ship, nor put your cargo aboard, and yet you, yet you have sailed, and you've already arrived at the city. He goes, Do the work first, and then you will have the speed you are making now. And uh, another good word, you know, he goes, you're, 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 you, you're talking about things that you've never put into practice, and we want to be folks who are doing it, what we say and learning and growing. So uh, the question is, as you think about how do I know what to read? Uh, how, do I, how do I know what to read and how do I know how to read it? Is it a skim? Is it a, uh, is it a slow meditative book? You know, and the question really is, what's God doing in you and how is he leading you? That's going to that's gonna determine what you're reading and actually how you're reading it. I follow curiosity, you know, personally, I follow threads, you know, and it could be anything from, you know, a friend mentioning a book or an article, or I go to a website, it leads me to another website. Uh, but the real issue is what's the work of God in and through you that he wants to do? So, for example, I'm not leading a, a large organization now. Uh, actually, Emotionally Discipleship only has one full-time employee, and she has about seven or eight contract employees under her. Uh, but if you're leading, for example, a church or an organization, uh, and you're not reading any leadership books, well, that probably is a problem, you know, because you want to be learning about leadership. You're in that field. So uh, there was a time I read a lot of leadership books. Um, and uh, But that's not really now on my you know, on my plate. Uh, maybe, for example, you read you, you read The Emotionally Healthy Leader, for example, and, and so as you're reading it, the Sabbath really hits you. Well, that may lead you to 
somebody I quote a footnote and you look at, you know, Mueller's book on Sabbath and you pick that up, or maybe you're touched by the word genogram. You say, oh, let me, let me look up this guy, Ed Friedman, that Pete mentions. And so it, things just lead you depend, based on where God's touching you and moving in your heart. So you want to receive the nuggets of how God's coming to you. And the issue is, what, what am I supposed to do with this? And how do I, how do I cultivate that moment? So again, I want to, I want to, I want to slow you down. Uh, leadership and life is a, is not a sprint; it's a marathon. Uh, so we want to move to heart reading of wisdom. So I want to share with you now a number of books that I've been reading the last six to nine months. How I got to them, and maybe insights that came to me through them. Now I'm not recommending these books like you should go out and read and buy them and read them. Um, that would probably be a different podcast. You know, here's ten top books that every leader I think should read. And that would be probably a good podcast. But in this case, these are just, these are just six, less six to nine months, uh, books that I've read. And it's to illustrate how I got there and how it's worked out for me. And I hope to kind of maybe, you know, giving you some thoughts or some to challenge you and think differently about uh, how you're reading and maybe how do you make sure you're picking up threads from God that he's putting into your path or or seeds that God's throwing your way that you don't want them to just fall to the ground and die. Uh, you want to pick them up. So I'm going to mention, actually, how many books here? Oh, 13 different books. <laughs> and uh, so I, re- I, re- I realize most of you are, a uh, large majority of you are in your car, driving, biking, walking, whatever. So you're not sitting, you know, making notes, and that's fine. So the list of these books... Uh, in order that I'm going to mention them will be on our blog on 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 the blog uh, at the emotionallyhealthy.org website. So if you're on our mailing list, you get that every week. You'll get some kind of a summary of the blog there. But uh, you can just go to that at emotionally.org and you can see get the titles there. So don't worry about writing it down. Uh, just kind of listen and enjoy yourself. All right. All right. So I got a stack of uh, a number of books here on my right. That I'm going to pull up and pick out certain pages along the way and read you maybe, you know, some sections. All right, so let me begin. You know, the, the first uh, book is called Inner Compass by Margaret Silf. What's interesting is I, I, I had bought this book years ago. I had it on my shelf. I started it, it didn't hit me, and I ended up giving it away. And here it is now, years later. Some person who was actually quite deep into Ignatian spirituality uh, who'd actually, this person had written a book on discernment themselves, uh, said that this was the best book that he knew on the topic. And I was like, wow. Uh, so I ordered it, picked it up again. And what's so interesting, I opened the book and it was like life for me. So again, certain books are come to you and it's just not your season for that book and there it goes. But for me, uh, Inner Compass was just, it was a timing moment. So I, I began to read it quite slowly uh, there's prayerful exercises in it, and uh, God just began to speak to me and, and uh, through it. Now, again, Ignatian spirituality is a, one of my large life passions of, because how do I discern God's will? I think I believe Ignatian, uh, Ignatius of Loyola in, in the 1500s was one of the greatest guides in the history of the church of how do I discern God's will? And uh, so I'm always learning and reading on that. I've got a spiritual director. We're doing, you know, Ignatian spirituality. So I'm, I'm all, I've been in it for many, many years. I, I talk about it in, I think, different books that I, I've written. But it's something that's got levels in it. So, uh, again, Margaret Silf, uh, in her book here, uh, she gives this image of Mary giving birth uh, that 
uh, and it, it's in a very early part of the book, and, and it, it so hit me that um, I just remember like going into the story of Mary and the angel Gabriel coming to her about, you know, that you know, God's going to birth something out of your life. You know, the Son of God is going to come through you. And just her struggle of fear and how the angel says, do not fear. And then she goes, let it be according, let it be to me according to your word. And uh, here's, what, here's what Sylph says. And, and uh, give me a sense of what I, one of the key themes of this book that hit me. She goes, bringing God's dream for us to birth is the amazing vocation of every believer. And when we reflect on Mary's response to the Annunciation and acknowledge that moment in ourselves when God asks, are you willing to bring me to birth in your own life? And our response is, let it be done to me according to your word. And uh, so I said, I've read the book thoughtfully and prayerfully three times. I'm still chewing on it. And even today, at the end of my morning prayer, I journaled on how, Lord, may I give back to you your dream for my life, you know, fulfilled. And I want to join you in that. And so it's very rare that I'll read a book like this, uh, this way. Uh, but I, I know God's not through with me around this theme of, you know, God's dream for each person's life. And I'm actually, next time I preach at New Life, I, I'm actually going to, I think I'm going to preach on that theme because I just want to do more work on it, more reflection on it. So, so here's, here's a case of a book which just lingering because I know God's trying to do some changes in me through it. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's number one. The second book uh, I want to mention here is, is that is called The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. And uh, how did I end up with this book was, well... Rich, Lee Pastor at New Life, had recommended it to me at one point. And then a number of other people recommended it to me. So then I read a couple of reviews on it in places, I think, like Christianity Today. So I finally picked it up. And it was clear to me as I picked it up and began reading, uh, reading that this person, uh, Fleming Rutledge, she was not just a preacher. She was a serious writer. She had spent years on this book. You, you, can, you can tell when a book is seasoned and not written quickly. Very thoughtful, uh, enormous amount of work, and it was very readable. And uh, I remember, I, mean, I read the book very slowly. It's long. I mean, it's five, six hundred pages. And uh, I took notes on the back uh, very carefully, and then I actually made a copy of by six or seven pages of notes uh, on the back of the book, and I and I put it in my journal so I could carry it with me and meditate on it. And it took me to scripture. I ended up reading huge chunks of scripture from Romans and Galatians and Corinthians. And, uh, but it's a book that I, 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 I guess I read it. I read it probably one and a half times at least. So I would go to different sections and reread them. But I really stopped and I prayed through various sections. It actually led me to scripture uh, as well. But here, here's a few quotes like from that I, I'm just going to read you from the back of my notes. You know, God in three persons, she writes, is most fully revealed in the son's accursed death. The wrath of God falls on God himself by God's own choice out of God's own love. She writes, sin is not something we commit. It is something we are in. Sin's power is to enslave. And she gives examples of being enslaved by sin, not just I committed a sin. It's brilliant. Jesus is no less God in the incarnation 
end on the cross. And I did uh, just spend time pondering, meditating on God on the cross. I mean, whew. the judge, she writes, was judged in our place. And she quotes Karl Barth's uh, dogmatics. And so that led me to begin reading sections of the dogmatics around the cross. I actually ordered uh, volume four. Then I have a friend with a PhD in Karl Barth. I remember calling him. Uh, he recommended a bio, a biography of Bart, which I did read. Then I remembered in seminary, uh, one of my professors felt, a, you know, believed that Bart was a heretic. I kind of went down that road. But again, it just it's just interesting how it led me to certain passages of Scripture. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18, and where Paul writes, you know, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And uh, I, I spent some days uh, meditating on 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, and about the power of the cross, and where Paul writes, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. I'm sorry, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Again, referring to the cross. So I'm not done. I mean, I, I, I've, I'm not done with that book, actually. Uh, and it's really the themes of that book that she writes about. Um, and she led me to a couple of different books. I remember we read one about a massacre in Poland during World War II. It was unbelievable. Of Gentiles, the Jews. and uh, But I, I'm also very aware that the reason emotionally healthy discipleship is difficult uh, for some churches to actually engage in because it is, it's, it's getting people to the cross to die so that they might experience a resurrection. But there's a, there's a death. I, I, I believe our work is meant to be an application of the cross. And I want to actually do a better job of communicating that clearly because the crucifixion is central to the Christian life. It's central to emotionally discipleship. It's central to, to me every day. And I don't, I don't think I've articulated it as clearly as I should, uh, nor do I feel like I have an understanding of the depth uh, and the breadth of the cross. Uh, maybe we'll spend all eternity grasping it, but very important book for me and a very slow read. Uh, all right. The third book here on my little stack is called The Way of Paradox by Cyprian Smith. He's a Benedictine monk. And how I ended up with this book, it's, it's about Meister Eckhart, one of the great spiritual writers of Western Christianity. Uh, he lived between 1260 and 1327. He was a Dominican German a preacher, very hard to read. Uh, I've tried to read him at different points in the past. I knew he was accused of heresy, but yet he's very popular. Uh, not a heretic, but he was very popular. And uh, so Jerry had ordered the book based on a recommendation. Uh, so of course I saw it sitting on her desk and always interested Meister Eckhart, never quite penetrated. This, this was a book about him and his writings. So I picked it up and it captivated me. And so I ended up in it for a few weeks. I uh, just finished it recently, actually. Uh, but to such a point where it became part of my, you know, prayer life as well, because as this author, Cyprian Smith, would quote sections of his writings, I was like, wow. And uh, so then I actually ended up ordering, ordering some of his uh, writings, sermons, a little compendium there. And uh, at night now in my, for the last guess, week or so, I've been just reading uh, a few paragraphs of sermons he's written, Meister Eckhart, and it's been just very rich for me, and I'm enjoying it. I realize I'm just in the beginning stages, 
But here's what here's a couple of lines from uh, this book on the way of paradox that hit me as he's summarizing Meister Eckhart's contribution to spirituality. He writes this, a transcendent God is one who cannot be pinned down, controlled or predicted. To cast oneself to cast oneself into the transcendent God is to cast oneself into the unknown. Many of our thoughts about God are projections. They say more about ourselves than about God because they're distorted by per our personal needs and our emotions. And it takes time for all that to be refined and purified so that truth can emerge. And uh, Eckhart writes of things that, that, that like things like we can only unite with God in a darkness and a kind of unknowing knowing. So when we're rejecting God, sometimes we're not rejecting the real God. We're rejecting simply our limited images of God, which is really an idol that has to be smashed. And to have loving union with God, our illusions about ourselves and God must be smashed. And so he talks about the, our, our true selves and our roles and functions in society, whether you're a lawyer, pastor, mom, dad, our activities, people project stuff onto us. That's not who we are. And uh, we're, we, we, part of the spiritual journey is getting at the ground of our soul, as Eckhart calls it, our true and permanent self. Well, you can't get there unless you detach from this, this illusion self. And so, yeah, again, writes about that. And you know, very, there's there's so much in here. And I was like, whoa. And uh, in fact, so he writes, and I'll read you just a little section here, um, uh, plunging into the abyss of the Godhead uh, and then sinking into the ground of our own soul are really one and the same process. The journey into the depths of God and the journey into the depths of ourselves are not really different. Uh, And then he expounds on that. I thought of one of the themes of emotion and discipleship is know yourself that you may know God. You can't separate the two. And so I'm looking forward to reading more on more Meister Eckhart's you know, sermons and writings. At this point, I got to get dig into the primary source and we'll see where it all goes. But uh, uh, I will almost certainly come back to some themes in this book, The Way of Paradox, after I've read uh, for a while Meister Eckhart's original writings. So during this six to eight, nine month period, I also read seven books related to African Christianity, ancient African Christianity, as well as present day African Christianity. I was in this really was kicked off by a friend of mine who's uh, a scholar in church history, invited me to a symposium that was being held in Manhattan uh, of uh, a symposium of scholars and historians that were honoring the work of Thomas Oden. Uh, around African Christianity. And uh, so I went. Now, I knew the name Thomas Oden because he has authored uh, a a number of books that I was familiar with, one of which is the Ancient Christian Commentary Series on Scripture, 29 different volumes. Uh, And so I went. I I went for a day. I said, wow, it's free. Uh, Sounds fascinating. And uh, loved it. Uh, again, I knew Africa was a was a center of not the center of global Christianity right now in the world. The future of Christianity lies more in the south uh, of the equator than the north. The 630 million Christians in Africa right now, and so the burden of these 60 scholars, and they came from again, they came from places like Africa, Ethiopia, and uh, you know Ghana. They came from actually China as well, some Europeans and North Americans. And uh, their burden is that the story and truth of African Christianity would get told uh, both in Africa and around the world to the church. So anyway, this led me to uh, picking up a a number of books. Uh, I started with How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind by Thomas Oden. 
uh, in which he talks about how uh, Africa played such a decisive role in the formation of Christianity in the first, second, and third centuries, and how, and fourth centuries, and how that flowed northward from Africa north. It wasn't north to south, it was south to north. And fascinating book on everything from how the concept of European universities uh, really was found first in Africa. The whole history of the, the deepest spirituality of Christianity came out of North Africa and the Desert Fathers. Uh, it was the African Christians and thinkers like Tertullian and Cyprian and others, and, and Augustine who influenced the, the, the Nicene Creed and the uh, Chalcedon Creed. And what we believe today, really so much of it was shaped by what was happening in Africa. Uh, understanding of scripture, uh, literary skills, I mean, you name it. There's so much that came out of Africa. It was a fascinating book. Loved it. Uh, and then I ended up reading uh, uh, two books on Thomas Oden's life. One was called The Rebirth of Orthodoxy, and this, another was called A Change of Heart, which was his personal and theological memoir. And in The Rebirth of Orthodoxy, he, it's a story of how he was a liberal professor uh, and how he moved to becoming Orthodox. Uh, and how in the first five centuries that he began to, to study, realized that in what's considered the church fathers, the patristic area, the classic Christian centuries, is when, when Orthodox biblical teaching was established. And this was considered the authority around the world for centuries. And uh, he writes about how the Holy Spirit has a history. And I was just fascinated on his, on his journey of moving from uh, a liberal who was not anchored in scripture to one who was, you know, again, as a scholar. And then his personal memoir is just filled with nuggets of insight, which is a nice, easy, fun read. And uh, for example, one statement he makes there, and uh, he says, I've come to a deeply held conviction that it's only from one's unique history of suffering that one can define accurately one's own calling. And I think, whoa. And uh, I, again, I thought of one of the great themes of what we're trying to do in Emotionally the Discipleship is... Uh, is how God enlarges our soul through grief and loss and how important that is. And again, we're back to discernment of God's will. And so again, filled with nuggets. And, and then I, I met at the conference a professor of world Christianity and West African Islam from Yale. He's been here 31 years. And he's from Ghana originally. And uh, he wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? The Gospel Beyond the West. And I read that book. It wasn't a long volume, but it was fascinating. And... Uh, you know, whose religion is Christianity? And his basic argument is it's not European and it's not, it's sure not Western. Fascinating, filled with insights, again, written by an African. And he talked to me about, actually we had a conversation about it. He just died recently. Uh, he, he talked about the Americanization of Christianity. I never heard the term, love the term, but thinking about it ever since. Uh, and actually have been, even after he died, there was a center of African studies in, up at Yale. And I actually went there for a day to spend time with a friend of mine who, who is the executive director there uh, now. And again, just learning a lot. Then I picked up a, a book called The 21, A Journey into the Land of Coptic Martyrs by Martin Muschbach, a German. And it had been translated into English. And it's a story of the 21 uh, Christians who were beheaded by ISIS uh, in, um, uh, in that Libyan beach by, by uh, militants. And if you remember the, the video, I'm sure you've seen of the 21 orange-clad men on that Libyan beach. And uh, and it's, it's, it's what this guy did was he went to the villages to find out their background, their stories, 
Uh, and it was, it's a, it's just, it, was, it was a rich entrance for me into Coptic Christianity, first of all, uh, into the whole Coptic church, which has been around, again, since the beginning, uh, the first centuries, first two centuries, the whole history of martyrdom. And, uh, and it was just, again, just entering the world of the Egyptian Coptic church, uh, the villages and faith of those men who were killed on the beach, was just fascinating. So what's interesting is one of the men on the beach who was beheaded was a Ghanaian from Ghana, black. And uh, it was interesting because here's the, the, in the book, I'm gonna read you a few lines in the book. He, the author says, there were probably no Coptics in his homeland. The kidnappers, I was told, thought he wasn't a Christian and they wanted to let him go, but he didn't think it was fair. Now, whether he was a Catholic, a Protestant, or belonged to another Christian sect, he didn't much care about the distinctions. And so the kidnappers had to take his word for it. And he was a Christian, he said, and that was enough for them to kill him alongside the others. I mean, who would know such a thing? And I thought to myself, how many, again, in my context, American Christians were sitting here in skinny jeans and leather jackets judging uh, Orthodox Christians like the Coptic Church who are getting beheaded on a beach for their faith in Christ. And we're sitting here in skinny jeans and in our suburban areas and our comfortable lives making judgments about uh, this church that we don't even think is viable because it's it's so different than our American Christianity. So again, fascinating read. Uh, and then it led me to another book by uh, David Wilhite. He was one of the presenters at that scholarly conference. It was called Ancient African Christianity. And uh, he's a historian from Baylor University. And uh, I started reading, I said, this is a little bit dense, uh, but it, I got so captivated by it, I ended up finishing the whole book. Uh, and he just traces the history of African Christianity, you know, from the early Christian martyrs who I'd heard about, like Perpetua and Felicity. And then he goes into Tertullian and Cyprian and Donatism and Augustine, the Byzantine era, the, you know, the, the Muslim invasion of North Africa. Again, another fascinating book. But this one section I ended up, I was so gripped by uh, that I ended up journaling about it. And it was Cyprian, who was a bishop in Africa. And uh, he tells the story of how uh, Valerian was had become emperor of the Roman Empire in 257 AD. And uh, so he revived the pressure at that time on Christians, and he especially targeted the clergy. Uh, and, uh, and so it writes about how in 257, Cyprian uh, was tried and exiled to a, a town you know, in, in, uh, called Carubus. And uh, But the next year, uh, the emperor, Valerian, ordered all... Um, Christian clergy to be killed. And so Cyprian was brought back to Carthage and he was beheaded on the 14th of September. And he's known as the first African bishop to be martyred. And I just stopped and I thought to myself, what would I do if an order had come, comes down that they're going to kill all the, you know, whatever, pastors in the city? Uh, or, you know, in the country. And I'm thinking, am I going to allow myself to be captured? And the story of Cyprian, he, he wanted to bear witness to Christ uh, in that process. And uh, I was just so, again, challenged uh, personally about my own faith and commitment to bear witness to Jesus, regardless of the cost, losing everything. And I thought of my wife, I thought of my children. Uh, and I thought, wow. So anyway, that was fascinating. And then... Um, Finally, the last book I, I read was uh, on African Christianity. It was called How God Became an African. 
uh, subtitled African Spirituality and Western Secular Thought. It's written by actually a professor of religion in the Netherlands named Gary Terhar. And his basic thesis is this, that Africa presently is steering the course of world Christianity. And their focus on the supernatural, dreams, visions, uh, every mainline church is charismatic, is basically you know shaping the church around the world. And he talks about all these African indigenous churches. It was, it was very, it's only a hundred page book. But fascinating. But here's here's how he closes the book. He says he says uh, the position in reflected in the attitude of many Western churches, which find it difficult to accept that African Christian Christianity might actually have something to teach them. There is little awareness in Europe. He's writing as a European, and I'll add in North America as well. There's little awareness of the contribution of African Christians for the for the for the church around the world, and people see Africans as essentially a people to be helped. But since the middle of the 20th century, the decline in Christianity in Europe, and I'll add North America, and its simultaneous expansion in Africa has brought a reversal of the religious roles of the two continents. And now with African migration worldwide, Africa is now a major player in world Christianity and is now, and they've become conscious of their reversal of roles. They're now planting churches all over the West. And his final line is this, what's clear in any event is that the Christian God has already become African. Great book. And I'll just close with this. Listen, I also read three novels uh, that were impactful in different ways. One was called Pachinko by Min Jean Lee, and, and it takes about a hundred year, three generation family, three, four generational family of Koreans uh, who had been you know, taken over by the Japanese in 1910 and you know, through 1989. It's a fascinating read. And I read it because I was so fascinated by, I know many, of course, Korean Americans here, uh, been, to, been to Seoul. Uh, and I just, I never really understood the depth of the history. And it was just, it was a very well-written, beautiful book, fun to read. And I also read two other novels. I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou and, and The American Marriage by Tayari Jones. And I read them because I'm deeply, they're just, again, enjoyable novels, but I'm always learning and reading about uh, uh, the African-American experience in the United States. I believe it's very critical for the church. There's so much to learn there. And it's been, you know, lifelong passion of mine as a follower of Christ. And uh, I'm just, I'm always learning, you know, and even just reading about a black couple in America, you know, ripped apart by a, the justice system in the American marriage was just, again, fascinating. So again, I want to invite you to, to make a shift in your reading, uh, to get out of your heads a bit and into your heart. And read for wisdom, you know, in an age of so much information flowing, flowing around. So just remember, we're seeking wisdom, not knowledge. And information leads to knowledge, but knowledge doesn't mean it's going to translate into wisdom. Uh, wisdom is going to come out of life. So, you know, our mission at here is at Emotion of Discipleship is to transform church culture through the multiplication of deeply changed disciples and leaders. And so part of being deeply changed is allowing ourselves to be deeply changed by what we're reading, by mentors that we'll never meet face-to-face. -face. So I pray you'll join us in this revolution in spirituality of trans changing culture, beginning with ourselves. And go to our website to get a chance at emotionallyhealthy.org. Look around uh, at the discipleship courses and other materials. And I'm so thankful you're joining us on this journey uh, that we're now leading forth with the podcast, The Emotionally Healthy Leader. It's been great to be with you. God bless you. You have a wonderful day. Hey.